0: Hello there, welcome to the Maker Manager Money podcast, a podcast about entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, founders, business owners and business partnerships, from startups to stay ups, to inspire entrepreneurs to keep going and future entrepreneurs to just start. My name is Kyle Knowles and I'm in Seattle, Washington, recording at The Union in downtown Seattle. Today's guest is Lashawn Smith, a visionary investor and business strategist with a background in software at Amazon and Microsoft. Lashawn has deep expertise in artificial intelligence, behavioral economics, and systems engineering to reshape the landscape of business strategy. With over 450 million in capital deployed and several patents to his name, LaShawn is a trailblazer in utilizing AI and machine learning to drive business success. His book, Values Based Business Design, is an Amazon bestseller, reflecting his successful approach to high growth product development. As founder of Kager Investments, he propels software companies to exponential growth, emphasizing financial returns, relationships, and time efficiency. LaShawn's philosophy, deeply rooted in stoicism, focuses on reaction mastery and the vital roles of position, people, and process in achieving business success. Welcome to the podcast, LaShawn.
1: Kyle, great to be here. Let's keep it loose. Have some fun. Let's do it. All right, where should we start?
0: Where should we start? Well, I mean, I just finished your book, Values-Based Business Design. Cool. Appreciate that. I totally wish all my podcast guests had written books (laughs) (laughs) that I could read before doing their episode, since I I feel like I know you so much more uh, and better than I otherwise would have. So I guess my first question is, what are the words that describe
1: your values? Well, I'll start with two things. First, you know, my personal values are... uh, easy and top of mind. I have a North Star. I think everyone should have a very concise North Star or constitution. Mine's six words and three sentences, know thyself, make things stay free. And it's primarily to make sure I don't, you know, break into jail and do something because of inertia or chasing status or because it was the easy way. And I've really found that, you know, having that, you know, set of words like keeps me honest. It holds me accountable. And so that's at the very core. Now, if you expand beyond that, there are words like stay curious. Uh, I believe to a large degree, entrepreneurship is just an excuse to be a lifelong learner, uh, that pays you very well. And so like, you know, there are so many things around, um, facing our fears, our self-development, uh, you know, moving without fear, uh, being, you know, highly transparent. These are all values that to me are non-negotiables and, you know, not just nice to haves. you know, you probably have uh, been into a building that has like nice furniture and it's good lighting. And then there's a culture poster that has some, you know, some, some words on there. And you're like, do they really live this? Um, And so I really try to kind of hone down to a list of things that um, I really can defend and hold myself true to. And then it's a lot easier to find You know, um, whether it's co-founders, investors, employees, vendors, customers, people who want to go along on the journey with you because they're like, all right, I understand the promise that LaShawn has made, you you know, both by himself and through this company. And I just think it's requisite in today's world that's hyper polarized for us to really communicate what we stand for before we get into telling and talking about what we're selling. I love it. I love the answer. And how many years did it take you to
0: sort of arrive at your values then?
1: Well, I will say, you know, in the very young age, I had the hints of this, but I kept messing up and I kept violating my values. Right. So it wasn't so much that you couldn't talk to, I mean, we could go way back, right. You know, Mm -hmm. you know, middle school, you know, high school, I had uh, a couple things that, you know, worked to my advantage is one thing. For whatever reason, and uh, there's a couple of moments that happen in our lives that you know leave a mark with us. Um, but I just felt adults didn't know what they were talking about, and not like, <laughs> hey, you know, like you're misinformed. There was just some weird energy where I felt they were giving me the answer that you know they wanted me to hear the, the do as I say, and I was just like, I don't know about these adults, and so you know that may have been misplaced but it really gave me the confidence to just try out myself. And so early on, I had figured out that, I should not listen to the crowd, but I couldn't articulate. And social pressures and other things would have me violating those all the time. And so the way I might reposition the question is, um, when did I start you know, staying true to my values? Mm-hmm. And that probably wasn't until my early 30s, right, where I had enough confidence to say, I'm not listening to these people. And so that has been really the journey for me, um, not just to be able to articulate those, but to make sure I don't uh, violate them. And I, and, I, and I use that word violate kind of like aggressively yeah. because you need to hold yourself accountable to whatever you say, right? And so for some people, you know, and I've had this conversation with many, many folks that I, you know, coach or mentor. A quick sidebar, you know, if you hear me say those words, I have this flow of um, you coach folks with a framework, a toolkit, not very personalized. You mentor folks for their situation at hand. Uh, and then, you know, if they've demonstrated that uh, there's someone that you really want to kind of see get to the next level, you need to sponsor them. You need to use some of your social capital to help them open the next door. It's not enough to just give people advice. You have to put yourself on the line. And, you know, there's a process to get to know someone, observe their behavior to see if that's worth it. Um, but when I coach and, uh, and mentor folks, one of the things I talk about is, all right, where do you really want to go? Like you get to define where your destination is. I'm not here to tell you what winning looks like. Um, but once you articulate what that is, Okay, now I want to put together systems to hold you accountable because you said this was your destination. And so many times I hear folks saying, well, you know, I don't want to be in the hustle culture or I don't want to work this hard or I don't want like okay, no one's saying you have to to do these things. You told me your destination was X. Is that really your destination or, or do we want to you know go old school, change the uh, directions in the Google Maps and, and go somewhere else? But if you're saying this is where you want to go, you want to get there predictably, you then have to ask yourself, you know, you know, how bad do you want that?
0: I like it. Um, so it, it's interesting because in the book you talk about you use two different words. I'm trying to remember the two words you use: uh, the sort of intention versus your willingness to actually do the thing. When when you talk about destination, right? Right. You can say I value something, but then your actions are sh- showing that you maybe don't value that. Can you talk a little bit about? those kind of the discrepancies between one's actions and one's values?
1: Yeah, I heard a great articulation of one small tweak you can make to how you commit to things uh, where you say, I will, instead of I can. So if someone says, you know, um, can you Write this memo next week, uh, you know, by by Tuesday morning. Can you um, join this committee for such and such? Can you go talk to this customer? Can you invest this money? Um, all of those things, you know, have an out. And if you say, I will invest this, now you're like, oh, I'm on the hook. Um, and what you'll find yourself is is communicating with more precision. You'll say, I will invest if these things are true by this date. Like you'll find yourself forcing more discipline in how you communicate and clarity because there's a commitment, I will. And so, so that's a good starting point. But if we were to kind of summarize, I think what is for me, one of the most important takeaways from the book, it is really figuring out what values you're willing to go out of business to defend. And to me, this is where like rubber meets the road. This is not just marketing copy that you get to change next year. Like you have to dig deep and say, what do we stand for? Um, there was a great, I don't know how, how deep the science was, but, uh, there's an entrepreneur. His name is Patrick Campbell. Uh, he started profit well sold for a couple hundred million dollars. And he did a study on, um, simply applying more societal values to a company. So let's say you sell cupcakes and, uh, what he found is if you go really hard on articulating the values you can get a 20 to 40% lift on revenue and i've like like i love that because it gives us directionally like a real number like what what is it worth um, to to go and live your values uh, as a company. Uh, and so that's a starting point. I think where it gets mixed up sometimes in the media is when we look at what's happening, this is top of mind right now with with Elon. Folks are saying, hey, Um, my values don't align with Elon. My values do align with Elon. Um, you know, folks, you know, like Disney came out with their their financials over the last few days, and they said, "Hey, we've maybe over-indexed and alienated some of our customers." Um, and my point is, I'm not on either side of the fence from from a business standpoint. Um, I just think if you attempt to say everyone is your customer. In today's society, it is going to be very hard to make all of those customers happy because you're going to have like this homogenized, like watered down version of whatever you offer. And if you're a small company, um, and when I say small, you know, this could be small in employee count, it could be small in top line revenue, but you know, for the most part, if you're not working at a public company or some massive, you know, five, 10,000 plus employee, uh, company, you're probably small enough. If the leadership has the courage to lean into this and you can compete with a Disney in a way you couldn't, you know, years ago, because folks are really yearning, uh, companies that say we stand for something. Uh, I'll give you one more anecdote. Um, I think it was, um, I think it was Downey, um, or bounty. Uh, it's one of these CPG companies. Um, I don't want to get the the wrong company, but recently they had made a commitment that said we are going to stand strong um, and plant a tree for every such and such action we take. You know, to kind of make these paper towels. Um, and you know, that was in the zerp, the zero interest rate policy period. And what happens? Um, times get hard, and you know, interest rates are at a different price point, and they released a press release saying like, hey, we're going to reposition this, right? It's like Tom's shoe saying like, we we don't give the one shoe forever you buy. (laughs) Like you're just breaking the promise, right? And so the reason this values-based approach is so powerful is it's a proxy of trust. And so many times, whether it's marketers, salespeople, the, the founders themselves, they use these proxies, these words to kind of infer what they stand for. And in a world where it's so hard to cut through the noise and get attention, sometimes you just need to say it. You need to be explicit. This is what we stand for. And if you don't break that promise, goodness, like you have so much runway and you may never be able to take that company and then say, we are going to grow to serve everyone but if you have the right type of investment and capitalization strategy, you never need that. and and this is you know we'll get to maybe um, how I think about how to fund and capitalize businesses. Uh, one of the reasons I think so many companies should never go the kind of traditional, leveraged uh, you know pe um route or uh the the kind of vc back startup route is because you have an edict to get to a certain size in a certain time window and that's going to force you to start expanding and serving more customers and you know invariably it's going to test your values um you know versus your profit seeking interests
0: it's uh it's fascinating and do you have any uh examples of of companies that are doing this really well, standing by their values?
1: Well, I mean, the obvious is on the the political front. I mean, you can see, you know, conservative coffee brands emerging that say like, this is what we stand for. Uh, and then on the flip side, you'll see folks who have much more liberal, um, you know, policies. Um, there's a indirect piece that you see in some places where, you know, it, it'll really talk about anything from like made in America, right? Like, like that's, uh, I think, a common thing where it's just, You know, whether it's protectionism or some underlying value, for some people, that's a huge turnoff. And they're like, we're a global economy and we need to help everyone. And other folks are like, if it's not made in America, I don't want to buy it. Um, And so uh, I think it's WeatherTech. They make uh, inserts for trucks. Uh, If you listen to any of their advertisements, it's very clear they're underscoring the made in America to project their values, right? And for some people, again, what I love about it is um, it's polarizing right? For a long time, uh, if you looked at someone like, let's say, Ellen, the the reason I find the rise in, I guess I call it fall, but at some point, everybody has to exit stage in entertainment. But uh, (laughs) the kind of the fall of Ellen was so fascinating um, was because they kind of propped her up as this uh, very popular person where she's very likable, but folks were mostly apathetic. And, you know, so... You know, if you said, "Hey, do you like Ellen?" Like most people would say, "Oh yeah, yeah, uh, talk show host, yeah, she's cool." But people weren't ready to ride and die for Ellen, right? And so, as soon as you know some controversy entered, you know, the 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 conversation, she's done, right? Um, And you you counter that to folks who are highly polarizing, you know, like let's say like a Kanye West. It took him doing some really egregious and extreme things for his core fan base to say, okay, this is enough. Right. Um, But they stuck with him for a ridiculous amount of time. And some of them are still there, um, which is quite surprising. Um, Again, you know, back to the Elon conversation, there are folks who um, are highly offended and, are turned off by what he stands for, and others are like, "That's what I'm seeking." Um, and I think we're seeing this on a public scale. The closer it is to a B two C company, the more I think this this starts to matter. So, you know, if we'll stick to the Elon um, example, as we think about X, there's all this drama going on on the conversations he had uh, at that recent interview. At the same time. Um, they're a little more muted at Tesla. People are like, well, you know, the cyber truck is this dystopian thing and, you know, Tesla's lost, lost their magic. You know, these are the same reporters just kind of bleeding that over. But then you get into SpaceX and it's a little quieter. You get into Starlink and it's like, you don't hear any of the conversations. And so I do believe there's a thread here that... Um, How can you use values to really drive is, uh, I think, at least for now, um, going to be more amplified on the B2C side than you might see on B2B.
0: Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about technology. You you mentioned uh, Tesla, but just for any companies out there, what do you mean in your book that pursuing technological innovation might not be the winning strategy for all companies?
1: Yeah, I would say it's probably not the winning strategy for most companies. There is a guy, uh, Matt Ridley, he wrote a book called The Rational Optimist. Uh, And I really like, you know, businesses that or books rather that can stand the, the sense of time and you can apply them to your business over 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 the years sidebar quick hack. One of the things I love to do when I find a book that a book that has been around for a long time, I go on eBay and I want to go find like first, second, third edition. So if someone says, hey, there was this great book on economics or human behavior and it was published in the, the 50s, I'm all about going and finding an old version and not the reprint. Two things. One, there's just some kind of history to it I find cool. And they're, they're, they're so cheap, right? Who wants these old books? But the other piece is sometimes they're formatted or Structured differently, and you really get some magic by reading the old uh, old version. And so, I, I'm always looking for those books that are standing the test of time, and then looking for modern, current books. You know, the last 10, 15 years that I believe will stand the test of time. Uh, and this particular book is is one of them. And the the key takeaway is if you are trying to. Go and start a business. You are going to succeed if you, or you're going to have the highest chance to succeed from your ideation, right? We can talk about people, process, uh, and positioning, um, you know, later on. But if you don't have, you know, kind of that core nexus of a, of an idea, um, you need to figure out your point of view. What's changed in the world that you believe is is worth chasing that other folks don't see. And and his his point, which I really love, is like what you want to do is be Uh, a contrarian that has an optimistic view that is also pragmatic, i.e. rational. So that's the rational optimist. And, And the reason I love the flow here is you're trying to find things where the rest of the world sees everything going in one direction and you see it going in the other direction and it's optimistic. And so AI is one of these things. When I see the media coverage, I find it fascinating that people want to project. And it's not surprising, but it's it's fascinating. They want to project the idea that if IA comes, they're just going to make us work for them. That's the human condition coming from a place of scarcity. For thousands of years, we've lived in a world where we didn't have enough food. We didn't have enough energy. And so our brain thinks, oh, Well, when AI, you know, becomes, you know, you know, we hit the AGI um, level, it's just going to make us work for them. We're going to be their employees. And it's like, no, I believe that, you know, even if we get close to AGI, um, what those tools, you know, I'm not saying like, is it going to be sentient, but regardless of of its capabilities, it's going to say, well, what is scarce? Energy is scarce. All right, let's go figure out, you know, maybe cold fusion is just a few you know, large language models away from like solving unlimited energy? What does that do to all the wars that we, we, we have to fight, right? We, we fight so many things around resources. Uh, And so I think so many things could be reshaped. Um, housing could become dramatically cheaper if we could take, you know, all sorts of raw materials and produce them without any constraints on energy. Right. Uh, and so I don't believe that, um, you know, AI is going to lead us down to some other, um, you know, kind of dystopian future. Now, I think the humans with more leverage with these tools are going to be who humans are. And so they might do bad stuff with these tools. And, and maybe we can come back to AI later in the convo. But if you have a point of view, and, and my point of view here with AI is that I believe it's going to be net positive And the acceleration that we're seeing in potential job displacement, it's already happened in other industries. And Regular working class folks are for the first time figuring out, oh, my goodness, I'm going to have to reskill every four or five years. And that's the real societal kind of change that's going. And I look at that and say, okay, what are the companies we need to build for that? And so getting back to the book and that punchline, um, finding ways to not only, um, you know, kind of see the world differently, but finding a way where you feel like this is a unique point of view but I, I think the world is better as a result. And then while everyone is frozen in fear, you can take you know, massive action and go chase that. So, so then, all right, so what do we do at that point um, you know, uh, as far as invention? The same author, he has a new book um, that talks about invention. And uh, I think it's, a, it's not surprising that he's written you know, a couple books in the same category. And he has this nice framework that says, first, you're going to look at the inventors. And the inventors almost never win. Then you're going to look at the innovators, and the innovators um, are the folks who go make it real, right? So if you look at someone like Apple, for instance, Apple's not really an inventor. There's not a ton you can look at. There's some material science and other things they've done that's pretty cool, but they haven't invented that much. Uh, And yes, they got plenty of patents and what have you, but, but like you know, orders of magnitudes. That's not the place of invention. That's the place for innovation. You know, I worked at, at Microsoft for a while and I would have buddies who say like, Microsoft just stole this idea from so-and-so. And if you look at the history of Microsoft, uh, there isn't a ton of original invention. And we want to tell ourselves these kind of societal flows that, oh, the inventor gets compensated. Almost never does the inventor get compensated. I mean, you can go way back to, you know, Tesla and Thomas Edison, you know, like it just does not work out that way. And so I believe that the inventors, if you're drawn to be an inventor, go for it. Know that your ability to capture economic value for your ev- invention is going to be low because over the course of time, ideas are worth zero execution is worth everything. Now, it doesn't mean we shouldn't celebrate these folks and you know, give them accolades and, and find other ways to support, um, but the idea is not really the magic. This is one of the reasons you know, people will say, hey, Lashawn, I got this great idea. I need to, to, you to sign an NDA before I share. Like, no. Like, like If your idea is so fragile that me hearing it puts it at risk, uh, you're not getting any money from me. And so I take Matt's framework, and I add a third pillar, and this kind of wraps it up back to your question, uh, and add operational excellence. And so you can say, what business am I in? Am I going to be in the invention business? I'm going to do deep tech. I'm going to do something really complicated. It's going to take me 20 years of a moonshot to go figure this out. Am I going to be an innovator? And I'm going to bring the right... Messaging, the right production, the right you know manufacturing efficiencies, all these things to go extract value? Uh, or am I going to be just a really exceptional operator who knows how to find a market, communicate to that market, and deliver uh, an innovative product to that customer? and if i if you look through those buckets, it it's it's fascinating because it maps pretty well to the different type of um, businesses and capital sources. A lot of the inventors, tend to be VC-backed type companies because they're chasing these moonshots. The biggest market cap companies in the world tend to be the innovators. People don't love to hear that, but it's like they have this labor and capital engine to go build things at scale, like the electronics in an Xbox or a PlayStation. Like, it's amazing because of all the innovation and cost controls and other things that happened. And then if you're like, all right, LaShawn, we're all over the place talking all this macro econ stuff. If we get it back to like, so what do we actually go do? I'm saying, you know, if you are not a big public company or you're on the VC train, um, so what do you do? I'm saying you should go, don't invent anything. Don't innovate anything. Go find an innovative product or service. Use your unique set of values and go operationalize how you sell that. And you get super tight on how you uh, you know, run customers through that, that process that we understand, right? How do they know, trust, buy, use, slash retain, and then recommend your product? And that is the economic engine. And so if you say, I only have, you know, a half a million dollars to get going, Don't pick those first two buckets. You're going to break into jail. You're going to get in trouble. And what you really should do is focus over here uh, on building a cash machine. And then over time, if you decide to move into one of these other places, your company grows up to IPO and uh, it becomes an innovator. Um, You want to carve off dollars for R&D and you want to chase a moonshot. All good. But I think most folks are going to be um, misserved if they start in bucket one or two.
0: Is commercialization, another word for innovation or not?
1: I think the Venn diagram is, is very, is, it overlaps. Okay. Um, you know, when, when I think about, you know, that innovation space, it, it, there really is something in the way we celebrate artists and, you know, other types of, uh, of creators where it feels dingy or dirty when it's like, well, this person came up with the idea though. And then these folks just figured out how to to sell it better, or they figured out how to manufacture it for cheaper. And I don't have a great comeback to, to to why the world is unfair like that. But when I talk to, you know, kind of fine artists, you know, folks who are actually in art and culture, I talk to people who are doing, you know, creative endeavors in the context of capitalism. A lot of times they really struggle with the world's not, you know, rewarding this idea. And I'm like, all right, if you want to go out and march, go for it. But if you want money wired into your bank account, you need to, you know, embrace this truism and go figure out how you move further down the spectrum.
0: Okay. I would like you to tell the story of getting into entrepreneurship when you were nine years old.
1: Yeah. So, so many things are about our environment, right? Um, Like I said, I had some peculiar kind of behavioral things where it's like, I don't trust these adults, but generally my success has, uh, you know, come from, uh, the people around me having an amazing set of mentors and, you know, great family structure. And so we were most of my childhood coming from a place of kind of, you know, deep financial insecurity. Um, and it wasn't, you know, to the extreme as others where maybe they're homeless or what have you, but like, you know, there was no question that we weren't, you know, the, the family on the block that that was doing it. And, um, through my life, uh, a few things happened. So um, I won't go super deep on, you know, all the chronology, but uh, chronologically, but I think it's important to hit a couple beats. I was in um, kind of the inner city, south side of Chicago. Uh, My dad was a musician and uh, he ended up getting sick. And uh, he had to kind of figure out where we were going to move. At a certain point, he was a uh, he was in the military as a guitar player, and he had been stationed in different places. Uh, and there's actually a job for that. I didn't know that. Uh, you know, uh, they called it. Uh, uh, it was this. It was the. It was the Navy show band had a subset um, where there was like a five six piece, and they actually his day job was to go practice and then go play on behalf of America. Um, so a pretty cool job. But anyway, he. Um, he had to go figure out where he was going to live. And uh, he moved from, um, we moved from Chicago back to Arizona, which we had lived for a short stint. And that's where, you know, he decided to kind of reboot and kind of get settled in. And through that process of being a military brat, one of the things you learn is you got to like meet friends quickly, you got to figure out, like, you know, I don't know any of you all, but hello, my name's LaShawn, or you just like go hide in a corner. And I, and I picked option A. Um, but through that process, one of the things that was always like in my brain was, oh, I met a new person, ask them a question. I met a new person, you know, like introduce myself. And we were living in student housing. My dad was in, in grad school. Uh, and we went to a um, uh, my mom was with a friend. We went to some type of wholesaling place, not quite a Costco or Sam's Club, but but something similar to that. And I'm like, I want to go in. And they're like, why does this boy want to go in here? And because uh, I'm just curious, right? You know, um, and I, and uh, so that curiosity led me to, to kind of tag along. And I felt like I was in like some magical place because I start seeing all of these bulk purchase items, and you know, I was my arithmetic was okay, and I was like how is it this price? Like, this is half price 35 cents on the dollar. My brain is like, like, is there something illegal going on? Like, like where have they (laughs) taken? And I'm like, I'm like, you know, this is like 19 years old. Like I'm very young at this point, but I felt like it was this magical place. And, uh, I said like, well, how do you get this? And she's like, well, you have a wholesale license, and then you can come buy this. And you go, and I was just like, what in the world? So short, short, short part of that that segment of the story. I, I got twenty dollars from you know birthdays or whatever, and uh, bought a box of candy through um, through this relationship. And then I went to the playground, and I just sold it. And I was like, oh my goodness, I, had, I thought I was rich. I was like, you know, I took this twenty dollars, and I had like forty five bucks. So I was like like, oh my goodness. And so I didn't really want anything. I just, I felt like, you know, uh, I had, I've, only, I've had this, this, this moment a few times in life uh, and uh, I'll date myself by this, but there was a point when digital music um, was getting disrupted and Napster had come along and uh, you could go on these threads and download albums. And I was so fascinated. I was like, this is going to go away. I could get all these albums. I was like staying up till like 2 a.m. <laughs> like like I found another great one and I listened to like, I wasn't even listening to the songs, right? Um, so I'm here pirating music, um, you know, downloading, you know, this music to a hard drive because I, I felt like this was so amazing. That feeling that I felt then is the same thing I felt with this, this little candy situation. I was like, this is gonna go away, and so I wasn't trying to like take this money and buy something. I was like, I need to take this money and go buy some more as quickly as possible because this is gonna go away. And my little brain was just like too immature to understand how business worked, and uh, and so like it gave me all this irrational motivation, uh, and I just kept you know moving through this process, and you know I I learned so many things from there, um, how to accommodate what people wanted versus what I wanted, um, how to kind of leverage that into other things. You know, I ended up buying video equipment and, you know, and computers. And I was like, you know, by the time I hit my my teenage years, I had a crazy amount of equipment in my bedroom. And it was just from selling this candy. And it was just it never left me in in my brain that, you know, if you could find a uh, kind of a unique pain point uh, for some for some folks and you weren't afraid, afraid to build the sales muscle like you would just have money. And uh, for a long time there, I didn't even have um, uh a bank account. And so I would have, like, we would move from different places and I would have all this cash, like in these (laughs) odd little kid boxes and containers. Um, And I didn't want my parents to quite know how well it was doing. And again, I thought I was like doing something wrong, right? Uh, Now I wasn't paying taxes. So I guess I was doing (laughs) something wrong there, but I was like, oh my goodness, like, like I had all this cash. And so through that process, what I, again, really took away was you could control your destiny if you could find a good problem and weren't afraid to sell. And that's kind of permeated through, you know, a number of steps in life.
0: And so you you take this money and you buy your first computer, mm-hmm. right? Well,
1: not my first one. My parents bought my first okay. one. That's um, right. You had a, a TR or whatever. It was an no, MC10.
0: MC10 that plugged into the TV. This was not,
1: yeah. this was not the... The, the high tech. Yeah. You weren't going to build the next Facebook with this computer. Um, But that gave me... That was like the entree into the world. Mm-hmm. And then I said, like, well, hey, hey, guys, to my parents, you need to buy me this other computer. Like, that's ridiculous amount of money and so then the candy unlocks you know my ability to go go buy those add-ons uh kind of chase the latest thing and it was really powerful because back then you there weren't a lot of folks who were like you know i write code uh and so you could talk to almost anybody in the space and they would strike up a conversation with you because you know it was such an odd thing and they're like who is this little kid you know by the time i was a teenager like like like, how does this kid know about any of this stuff? Right. And so, you know, back to the power of, of mentorship and coaching I just met some really nice people who would take me to the site. and be like, well, it doesn't actually work like that, but since you're interested, go do this. I found that, you know, if you take their feedback and come back really quickly to them and say like, thanks for the feedback, here's what I did. They would get energized. They give you more information. And so that's another kind of tactic I've used throughout my life. But Yeah, I I would use this candy money to go get this equipment. And I had no idea that technology would be this massive lever that you could use uh, to create economic value. And so you taught
0: yourself to code. Yeah. Right. And what was the first uh, programming uh, language that you learned then?
1: Well, back then it was, uh, it was basic and assembly. Uh, okay. Assembly was like, oh, it's, it, it, to this day, you know, writing assembly is like this thing in my brain that, that really hurt. Uh, and <laughs> I realized like, all right, I love more of the applications versus like the operating system. And so that's where I wanted to play. But the, the takeaway there was I kept learning, um, what, what do the people want? Right? And so I would always try to like find a project that was based upon what some other folks want. In our house, we would play uh, Scrabble. that was like one of our you know family games. And I was obsessed uh, with building the perfect timer. And I, you know, in my brain, I'm thinking everybody, you know, plays Scrabble twice a week at their house. And so I have this (laughs) massive market, like so many things that were really intelligent on my side. And then so many things were like so dumb. It's just like, (laughs) all right, I was just way off base. But I was so convinced that everybody was all playing Scrabble in their homes. And I was going to build the perfect Scrabble timer because we played time-based uh, Scrabble. Uh, and so I was always rebuilding this this app over and over and over. And my mom would get frustrated um, because, uh, not surprising, sometimes my little app wouldn't wouldn't work. And she's like, LaShawn, can we just can we just play the game? Like your 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 thing doesn't work. Um, and I had you know this is like a old school computer. So I'm like bringing the computer over there to the, the to the table, and they're just like. Okay. Just 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 let them get through a little bit more before we uh we we cut them fully off. But those were the types of problems I was solving and uh for anyone who's into marketing, um here's a little quick hack. Uh, folks may be familiar with the copy method where you actually through wrote type what other great writers write, and you force yourself, uh, usually by hand, uh, to actually write great copy, and it will actually train you if you get enough reps on how to be a great copywriter. Um, I actually did that with code. I would get these magazines and these printouts of code, and I would just type other people's code for hours. Uh, there was no great debuggers or any types of tools then. Uh, and so stuff would break all the time. And it was just those reps that really helped me kind of get good. Uh, and the thread, you know, whether it was, you know, writing code or, you know, learning how to sell to people is that those iterations and those repetitions matter. Uh, the consulting company, uh, PWC, they have this framework called the BXT and it uh, stands for uh, business, experience, and technology. And they're, they're, they're obviously selling consulting services, but their pitch is most businesses have a owner on one of those three. So if you're entertainment, uh, you got someone marketing the business, you got someone doing the creative, you got someone, you know, on the craft of the crew actually producing the movie. Uh, if you are making, you know, Doritos. You have like, you know, somebody has to go figure out, how, you know, what's the flavor and all those things. Somebody has to go run the supply chain and manufacturing. Somebody has to go, you know, do the next TikTok uh, Super Bowl ad or what have you. And and so I really like the idea that regardless if someone's listening to this and they're like, well, I'm not into coding or I'm not like that's not the takeaway. The takeaway is there are these elements that almost every business needs. And you, if you really invest the time in rapid iterations, uh, you're likely going to kind of get there more quickly. And as there's that saying, you know, success favors speed, um, you really need to move fast to win.
0: And then so from uh, er- early days of learning how to program and copying code and things like that, take me to... Going to university, ending up at Amazon and Microsoft, and what what was that kind of uh, journey?
1: Yeah, so much. I believe of our success is again our environments, what we get exposed to, but also feeling and seeing what's possible. So I was doing all this stuff with code, and it wasn't until there was someone in our church who, uh, and it was totally random. Um, I'll say I'll use the word random here, um, but. You know, there was this serendipitous moment where he said, uh, hey, uh, LaShawn, you want to ride with me, but I got to stop at my office. And here's how my world was. Uh, when I was young, I didn't know anyone who worked in an office. Zero, zero people. I mean, plenty of my, you know, my family, they were blue collar workers or, you know, you know, whether they work for the city or, um, you know, my mom was a teacher. I-, I didn't know anyone who went to an office every day. And I was just like, whoa, I want to go to an office. And when he, we got there, there were all these computers. And I was like, what are these computers for? Like, my brain is like, other people have, they use their computers at work? Like, like I had no idea what, what was going on here. And um, he said, yeah, we do data processing. And he started breaking down what it was. And there was two things. One, I saw it. Like, and it wasn't some fancy office. It wasn't like, this wasn't like a nice place, but it was like, it was so real. And there was a guy who looked like me and I was like, and so what do you do here? And he's like, oh, I own this business. And I was like, I was so confused. Like my whole world construct was like, okay, like this, this is a thing. So I, um, I ended up, um, finishing high school early, and I went to junior college. This is another really interesting part of my journey um, where I was doing so many dumb things. Um, but I finished high school at 15. And so I start full time at a junior college because I was nowhere near mature enough to go off to a proper college myself. But my parents were like, well, what are we going to do with this guy? Uh, and so they they put me in this community college. Uh, we, were, we were in Arizona at that point, back in Arizona. And we were uh, you know, I, I'd have this crazy schedule where you know think think about a a kid in in a, at a juco, they don't have that much to do in class, right? And so here I am. I would show up at this point. You know, the languages were uh, COBOL and Pascal and some of these other things. I think the database was DBASE. One another thing I I did there, I got my hubris got in the way. In One of my first classes, I got a D. Um, and this was horrible. I still have that transcript as a reminder uh, because I was just on autopilot. I was like, "I got this. This is this is light work." Um, but uh, anyway, so I, I got in order. I got on top of the grades. You know, got back to uh, like you know being focused. But I just had all this time during the day um, because you know at like one fifty-five or whatever. You know, your Monday, Wednesday, Friday classes were over. Now, not a big deal for a college kid, but for a sixteen-year-old, like. All sorts of trouble, right? And so I would just get on the city bus. I didn't have a car at the time. And I would ride all around the city. I'd go into stores. I'd meet people. I I was just like a really odd kid. But... This taught me so many things. I mean, I don't even know if today's parents would let their kids like roam around <laughs> a large city on the bus by themselves. And I wasn't asking my parents this; they were, you know, they're at work trying to kind of keep everything together. Um, but I just didn't have anything to do during the day, and it's to me it speaks to something that I value now: is that you need to give yourself space to breathe. Observe the world and kind of find uh, these moments of opportunity. And sometimes we're packing our calendars so jam-packed that you can't, you know, find that moment where there's a spark where you see something uh, that's an opportunity that you're uniquely qualified to to uh, to go and tackle. But nevertheless, um, I decided that once I was wrapping up that that uh, associates program, I go home one day and I don't remember what my my parents were talking about, but they were trying to give me some more responsibilities and I was like, I'm out of here. So I, I borrowed my dad's car and I drove to the military recruiting station and I bounced around from a few of the recruiters. The Navy guy had the best deal and he seemed to be the one who's, who was following the rules the least. And I was like, that's my guy. And they gave me a really good package. I went in the military and um, finished my undergrad while I was there. And during this whole process, it was just kind of this, oscillation between me being fascinated by media production but also you know just in love with you know with coding uh, and so once I got out of the military I still didn't really understand corporate I didn't understand capital investments I didn't understand you know how the large companies you know like like a Microsoft even hired right like I didn't I didn't think like well I should just move to this city and just go get a like now I'm, I'm an adult now and I'm still so ignorant right? And so I moved back home and I start working for these small web development shops and other types of things. Uh, and then at a certain point, I just got a break. Uh, and one of my friends worked at a place that um, was working on agency work um, for some, some national level uh, clients. And they said, hey, this LaShawn dude, can, um, he can code and he can do some front end you know, kind of design things. Uh, and so just by making myself useful, people started, you know, again, coaching me mentoring me, sponsoring me. And then that led through a course of startup opportunities I got to work at. Um, I had a great friend who brought me in as a CTO for a venture back startup they were working on. And I was I was by far the youngest person on this team, right? I'm, I'm in my 20s. I'm the CTO of this, this business. I knew nothing about venture capital. We had raised, I think we were at eight and a half million at that time. And then we um, did a, um, a small mez round. And so, you know, for me to even be in this world was like some crazy talk because I understood the tech, but I just kept hearing them talk about the business stuff. And I was like, this is interesting too. But They're like, you, you're, you're the, uh, you're the tech guy, you know, go, go figure that part out. And I was really like, I was confused why I didn't get a say. Right. And so I became kind of obsessed with like, what do they know that I don't know? And, uh, the woman who ran the company, she had a, she had a JD MBA. So she had both a law degree and an MBA. And, uh, this was a cluster of folks who, you know, they're pretty well educated. She had gone to, uh, HBS, uh, Harvard's business school and, uh, had, you know, worked at Goldman and like, there was, you know, all these steps. And I was like, all right, so like, like, what is this path? Right. Because I started researching net worth and how much these hedge fund manager people, I was like, This is crazy. I thought tech money was good. Like, this money is bananas. And I just kind of looked around and said, look, these are smart people, but they're not smarter than me. I just, you know, I don't know the language. I don't have the skills. I don't have the network. And all of that can be learned, right? And so... I really believe in like focus on what you can control. And so from there, I decided to go to business school. That led me to uh, product management roles. And then I ended up spending uh, over a decade uh, as an executive at Amazon and Microsoft as a result.
0: And and in the book you mentioned, you have two master's degrees. What, what were they in then? One was business and one was...
1: The other one's in, um, it's called EMC. So it's media and computers. And it's really, you know, again, I'm, I was at the time, this was like CD-ROMs, right? So this is like... Um, multimedia. Th- this is what it was called. <laughs> uh, and uh, we were using a program called Macromedia mm. Authorware. Um, and this is a company that Adobe bought years later. Um, it had Flash and some other things in there. Um, uh, anyone who's into the tech scene, they, they will remember the time where uh, the khaki-wearing Adobe people were in San Jose and then all of the um, kind of purple and blue haired you know, folks were in San Francisco. So they were all Adobe after the acquisition, but there was this clear demarcation of kind of the environment. And I got to Seattle by an interesting uh, point, I actually had an offer from Adobe to go move to San Francisco to work on uh, this product called Flash. And so the old school folks will remember Flash. Um, And then in the 11th hour, I got an opportunity to come to Microsoft. And uh, I was like, which one of these do I believe is the more durable uh, place? I think I'll have more fun in San Francisco. I think like I had all these ideas in my brain, but I was like, I don't know. Like I have all these historical reference points and I was like a place that someone like Bill Gates built is probably going to teach me more than, you know, going, taking this other job. Uh, So that's how I got to, to this region even. But the, the thread there again was, um, you know, really just kind of taking one opportunity, not being afraid to move from that to the next one, even though there was uncertainty.
0: So do you believe that it's, um, it's more about the who than about the how?
1: It's funny you say that word. This is like, I don't know if this is just trending right now, so I've heard that that um, question a couple of times. I think it's both who is the team, um, but also who is the customer, and I don't believe you can decouple those. Uh, I think you could have uh, an individual or a team that is pointed at the wrong problem you know, for the wrong customer, and it's still not going to work. And and it's really, really important, I believe, to uh, do that assessment as early as possible.
0: Yeah, I think I, I mean it more personally, I guess, mm. uh, because I heard the other day your net uh, worth or your network is your net worth. Oh, yeah. And so it just reminds me of people saying, you know, it's, uh, focus on the who and it's it's who you know, it's who you meet that creates these opportunities, not yeah. necessarily how you go about things. I mean, you have to be ready, obviously, yeah. to to take advantage of those opportunities. But when I'm listening to your stories, it's like, okay, someone took you into this warehouse, right? Someone, someone you know, took you into an office. Someone said, oh, what about this opportunity? And you ended up in these different places because of someone. I mean, obviously, you were talented. You knew your stuff. But – it usually was someone that helped you to get to these different places. Is no, that, I, does that I,
1: make sense? I love that point. I, I would maybe uh, rephrase it. I like to do semicolon ands on okay. a, a lot of ideas. Um, I would actually maybe park the why in front of that. So 100% mm. the who goes before the, the how. Um, I would actually park the why in front of that because that gets back to the thread of this conversation on values. So, so why should that person care to use their time, their social capital to to help a little kid out? Right. And, you know, I've continually found that people who are very successful, not marginally, or, you know, they're just, you know, they have their own imposter syndrome, like no folks who generally have figured it out those are the folks who almost will always help you if they feel you're doing it for the right reasons. Like, I've rarely met someone, you know, you hear in our nomenclature, you know, I have all these haters. I don't have haters. I have doubters. I have people who love me, who in the past have maybe um, said, hey, Lashon, I don't know if that's going to work because they're projecting their fears, but I don't have haters. Um, And so I've really found that if I focus on the why, uh, and I'm very honest with myself, it's okay if I meet someone and they're like, "This guy doesn't get it." Um, I used to be really offended by, you know, my VC peer friends who um, really look down on lifestyle businesses, and you know, I just realized they're playing a different game, right? And it, and it's okay. And. It doesn't matter that, you know, I choose to move very differently. I'm not a big believer that uh, OPM, other people's money, is the best way to get to your first, you know, kind of seven figures of liquidity. I think there's so many other, you know, more predictable ways. But if those folks are playing that game, then they're going to tell you that's the yeah, you know, like your path may be suboptimal, and so a hundred percent. I think you know, the people who you surround yourself with um, are really critical to all of this, and whether or not they they decide to let you hang out with them, I think there's a why that you need to be able to communicate, uh, even if you're still looking for the vocabulary.
0: Okay, I like that. I like parking the why in front of that, and it does lead back to uh, values. Let's, let's focus in on, and then you, you, you start Kager. Yeah. What was the, what was the shift from, you know, you're working for, I mean, some very stellar companies, right? Amazon, Microsoft, what was the shift and what was the turning point for you to go? I'm going to go out on my own and, and do this, you know, going back to basically your roots of being an entrepreneur as a nine-year-old, right? And what, what made, what was, what happened in your mind to have that shift and go become an entrepreneur?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, one thing I will not give my, many things I will not give myself credit for, but, but one thing I have to say out loud is I'm fairly risk averse, all things considered. I take a very measured approach to things. However, I have strong conviction and so, you know, back to the young version of me where I thought adults didn't know what they're, they're talking about, I still don't think they do, including myself many times. And so when I see the media covering things or I see a CEO on stage at a keynote or I see a, pol- like, I, I know at this point, um, it's not always just ulterior motives. Many times they just aren't informed. They're, 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 you know, moving with, uh, you know, incomplete set of data. And so I have found extreme conviction that if I believe the way I see the world is right, I'm not going to listen to other noise. Right. And um, I don't know if that's a superpower and a kryptonite, <laughs> um, <laughs> but it is it's definitely part of how I move. And the part I wanted to call myself out on is I didn't say like, all right, I've learned all these things. Now it's time to go in entrepreneurship. I've had entrepreneurial experiments, you know, is what I like to call them in between some of these jobs. Right. So I've, I've started, you know, four plus one companies, two of them failed horribly. Uh, one of them was an aqua hire one was a, uh, a success, a, a sale. Uh, and then the fifth one, I wasn't really the operator. It was just one of my first kind of all in investments and I had to shut it down. And so, It wasn't so much like I learned all these things. Now I'm ready to graduate to capital allocator and becoming an no period. No. And so what happened was I first started to, you know, one of the first businesses I started was, you know, beyond all these little side businesses, like real businesses, um, I started an agency and I just kind of gave up because I got burnt out really quickly. Then I went back to a job. The next business was a, a music discovery service and uh, we were kind of too early, even though we had good talent, some other pieces, and we just couldn't crack the customer acquisition cost, you know, kind of nut. Um, next was a uh, an SMS to big screen um uh, startup, so we were trying to do uh, kind of stadium interaction where you know a big sponsor could go and uh, sponsor some um, you know some game, and what did they get out of it? Uh, they would get all this these SMS numbers, so they could retarget them. Uh, that would actually that was actually not a bad business, uh, but uh, uh, we ended up doing an aqua hire, and uh, you know so- someone someone bought that. Um, then I started and sold a mobile enterprise company, and that was the first time where it was like, oh crap. There's like some real money in my bank account, right? And I did a bunch of stupid stuff. Now, I did have a great mentor who was like, LaShawn, don't buy anything dumb for a year. Like, just let that money sit there. Don't worry about inflation. Don't worry about, I got to go hire a money manager. And like, you know, he's like, don't worry about it. He's like, you're going to make more mistakes trying to move quickly um, You need to go get educated, not just on who, who are the right support structure folks to put around you, but, you know, how do you want to leverage this? Do you want to move into capital preservation? Do you want to use this to go, you know, find your next win? Like, Like, you know, do you want to start giving back now or do you want to give back later? Like all sorts of questions that I was coming from such a place of ignorance on just how to use and you know, like have this type of money that like in my brain, it was like, oh my goodness, this could be very stressful just to even navigate, you know, all of this. Uh, But I did do stupid things and I just got lucky. Uh, I invested in multiple feature films. We were able to uh, do pretty well with that. Knowing what I know now, I was like, oh my goodness, that like, (laughs) no way should I have done any of those things. Um, Another thing that uh, I invested in is a couple spec homes. uh, And it turned out that what I learned is I really don't like real estate as a job, right? So um, I think this is another know thyself type piece. Uh, You might hear a bunch of folks are like, Oh, real estate is the way it is a way. Mathematically, it is one of the best ways. And I know LaShawn doesn't need to do it because It just does not interest me. It's too much admin and paperwork, and the sales part of it is like not differentiated enough. It's regulated. Like there's so many things about it that I just don't like. But I don't. I don't look at it like you shouldn't do that. I look at it as I know myself. I should stay away. And so I did all of these things. I started angel investing. I've probably done about. uh, I'm over somewhere in between you know, middle thirties to maybe, uh, just below 40, um, angel checks that I've written. And so to write that many angel checks, you have to kiss a lot of frogs and, you know, look at a lot of deals. Uh, and so through all of this, you know, I was moving in and out of, of jobs. Uh, and I like to remind folks, you know, it's not that the job you may have sucks or the job that you have, you know, doesn't have enough financial upside. So you have to start a business make sure you double check that your skills aren't applicable in some other industry, because maybe you just bet on the wrong industry. And uh, I was just reading uh, a LinkedIn post from a friend that he sent me and uh, was talking about, you know, someone had this job making a couple hundred grand. uh, And they're like, I didn't chase the next promotion because I would only make $250,000 more. And it wasn't worth the 70, 90 hours. Instead, you know, I learned real estate and I learned, and the whole narrative makes sense. The the piece I call out is to remind folks, while there are many industries, likely most, where they're going to overwork you, not compensate you properly, there are other places where the tailwinds of that industry are just amazing, and you would be startled by how much an employee can make at certain places. Uh, And um, I got really lucky, so I ended up going back to uh, Microsoft, uh, after um, I sold that company and uh, in corporate, they give you these things called RSUs, uh, restricted stock units. And uh, I came in somewhere around $35. Um, and so anyone who knows the the Microsoft stock price today is like, that was a crazy run, right? Um, and so all of my bad business mistakes got like cleaned up by like one job, right? And so I don't look at it like I'm smart. Like there's so, so, so much luck involved in this. But at a certain point, what I realized was I had accumulated all of these interesting experiences and skills that created options. And just like a financial option, if I don't exercise it at some point, it's worth zero. And I considered VC, I considered traditional private equity, and where I found in micro private equity was a way to play the game on my own rules, where I didn't have to follow other people's playbook. Uh, but I could still kind of do the type of work that would get me energized.
0: And so what does Kager do?
1: Yeah, so Kager invests and, uh, well acquires and uh, incubates uh, companies. And it's an investment vehicle that I created to uh, do what's called micro private equity in permanent capital. And really what that means uh, for folks who are like, what's that? Is that an option I should should consider? It's investing in businesses where you have no predetermined timeline to return the money. And most, uh, we'll put hedge funds to the side, but most VCs and Private equity firms uh, will use a lot of leverage. They'll use debt. You know, back in the '60s, there was this thing created called the LBO, the leverage buyout. It got really popular in the '80s. Uh, the big kind of historical deal was Revlon. Somebody basically, you know, the way the way LBOs worked is, and they still work, is let's say you've built a company and it has the equivalent of a FICO score, right? It has a business score, and you can use that uh, to go get loans, right? That's what S and P and some of these other companies actually. Were founded on. They were they were do they were there to kind of rate the credit worthiness of a business, uh, and so private equity general partners would come in and say, this company has a great credit score, and they would go raise a ton of debt get a big loan. Uh, then they would pay uh, what was called golden parachute to all the executives. And then the executives would sign off on this deal that may or may not be in the best interest of the company. But they're like, crap, they're going to give us all these crazy exit packages. Uh, and then they load the company up with debt. They take a distribution from the company to pay themselves early up front. And then maybe, maybe not, the company does okay. Okay. And, and this is how private equity has been run for decades. It's also why sometimes it gets a bad rap, but you know, there are folks who are great operators who do the right thing. And then there are other folks who, you know, they're, they're definitely bad actors. And then there's massive companies that are so big. It's kind of hard to unpack if every deed is evil or every deed is good. You know, I'm talking to massive folks like, you know, KKR and, you know, Carlisle and, you know, Apollo and some of these folks, and they, you know, routinely do, you know, Three, four billion dollar investments, um, but the core with all of that is where are they getting that money? Mostly institutional capital and retail money from like our four hundred one ks, right? And so there might be a pension, a um, a university endowment, like all these folks are giving them money to go. Um, buy companies and run them, and they typically have a time horizon—three years, five years, seven years—where they have to go return that money. And there's an artifact called a PPM, a Private Placement Memorandum, and that is the document when you're raising money for your fund that you have to say, "Here's the type of companies I want to invest in. Here's, you know, how we're going to use that money. Here's when we plan to return it." And uh, this is this has all sorts of security and trading. Rules attached to it. So if you if you say something in this PPM, and then you're like, no, we're actually going to go, you know, buy like solar plants and go arbitrage that. Like the SEC is going to come knocking at your door, and you're probably going to go to jail, right? And so your fiduciary duty on this whole thing is super super important. Uh, And so I looked at that, and I was like, all right, I like the idea of learning an industry, finding a problem. Uh, For a specific customer, uh, you know, target audience and then investing in that. But I don't want to have to deal with all of these rules. I don't want to have to go eat random, you know, steak dinners in Omaha. Like, I want to do all this stuff that's required to, you know, to make sure you keep your limited partners happy. And if you take their money You have to do all the accounting and all this stuff for years. Many times a fund doesn't wind down for 10 or 12 years. So you can't just break up with this idea because you have a new thing that you want to chase. Um, You got to commit there. And I know myself, right? Know thyself, make things stay free. And I was like, that ain't me. And so I said, how can I take the structural elements of uh, private equity and go do something different. And what I found was uh, what today is is pretty popular and known as a holding company where you have uh, private, um, uh, usually family offices, where they hold a collection of businesses. Sometimes they're related, sometimes they're not. And when I found this structure, I was like, this is it. Uh, and the beauty of Permanent capital is that you're making a promise that you don't have to sell this company in three, five, seven years. You're structuring it so you get paid off of um, just the, the profitability and so the cash flow. So the number one metric I look for all of my investments is just free cash flow. I'm not trying to take a company public. I am not trying to do an M&A deal and sell it to someone else. Uh, I look at very small deals that most folks will ignore, um, typically under uh, $5 million of enterprise value. And so the, the beauty there is I can be pretty sophisticated in a space where there's a lot of unsophisticated people. And at the same time, there's so much deal flow because so many people have something to sell. Now, there are People who sell companies because the company's trash, you know. like I said, people process position. They're not selling to the right folks. The, the talent or the management team is, is not the right set of people or their go-to-market is weak. So those are just bad companies. I don't really love turnarounds. But there are other times where the owner is aging out or there's somebody on the cap table of the company that needs to get off. So maybe it's two people who founded the company One of them wants to leave, the other wants to stay. You can buy out the shares of the other co-founder. Other times, you know, it could be a VC or someone else who's like, listen, we need cash because this is only going to be a 2X and our portfolio needs to invest in 20X or 30X companies. So we need you guys to liquidate, go do an aqua hire or something else so we can get this cash to go, uh, you know, invest this into another company that can maybe hockey stick. So there are all these reasons for why a company might um, go and... uh, want to sell. And what I found along the way is there's a really sweet unserved uh, area of uh, helping businesses start, grow, and sell themselves. And so that's kind of the mission that Kager is on right now is to go find companies I can acquire or incubate that help other companies start, grow, and sell. And it's really just a culmination of all these things we've talked about. I've looked at so many different types of businesses I'm fascinated by prop tech and construction trades but when I have to like put my money where my mouth is I'm like what what LaShawn, do you know really well I know how to start a business I know how to grow it I know how to get it ready for you know for selling and when you look at the companies in that value chain, There's just a lot of, you know, poor brands. You can't name who the winner is. People are, you know, they're not very well run. And so there's just so, so much opportunity in that category. So it's just like a little niche, a little lane. And uh, it's really exciting because I get to take all the pieces from this journey and apply that almost every week. And how long has Kager been in business then? Uh, so we just hit our anniversary year. So this is uh, this is year one full time. One of the things that I love to tell people is go try this stuff out on other people's dime. So I was still working in big tech while I was uh, you know, starting my investments. Uh, and so I've been, as I said, I started as an angel and then i started looking at these more esoteric deals you know did some 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 real estate syndicate deals and these types of things and so i've been investing for about a decade and the other piece that we didn't talk about is uh, at a certain point when i was in corporate i was given a checkbook to actually invest on behalf of other companies uh, and through that lens uh, i've invested you know hundreds of millions of dollars and so you get forced to learn how to deploy and allocate capital when that level of pressure is on you um, because you're, you know, you're writing checks for others. Uh, And so that was almost a proxy to other people's money, but it was just through an employment job. And so when I quit, like somebody else takes that job and now they're the capital allocator, but those were the steps along the way to both give me, I think enough reps uh, and the clarity on how to focus, you know, Also, the beauty of doing a low leverage model today, it's just myself, my capital, and two family offices uh, for for the capital that I deploy. It's not a complicated set of conversations on when to write a check. I can many times get to a term sheet in two days. Um, And so I don't need to string people along, have all these kind of crazy conversations. Now, they may not like my number because they've romanticized that they're worth you know, four times revenue, and I'm like, no, you're worth you know two and a half times EBITDA or cash flow, um, and uh, you know, you just, I, I'm pretty apathetic about it. Um, you know, I'm not here to um, to save people, but at the same time, I want to be very honest. And if I'm not the deal for you, uh, I don't want to waste your time. And so it's it's a really interesting world because there is so much opportunity. Uh, and even in this first anniversary uh, that we're hitting, uh, as I'm looking, I'm like. I need to focus even further. Like I described that niche and I'm like, I need to f- focus even further because there's so many uh, things. You can almost get distracted, you know, talking to so many folks, looking and taking so many calls, you know, talking to so many business brokers. And at a certain point, you're just like, all right, the more we hone in on something unique from a thesis standpoint, you know, the the more I'm going to be able to find these kind of hidden gems uh, where other folks may be ignoring.
0: Congratulations on your one year anniversary then. And what, what does the future hold then for Kager? What does it look like?
1: Well, I think the biggest thing is, uh, applying a lot of the things that, you know, I talk about, uh, when I coach and mentor folks, it's like, how do we operationalize that? Um, you know, I keep coming back to this theme that, you know, why does most businesses break down, you know, people process and position, I don't have product in there. And a lot of times people are like, Oh, if I just had more money, I could make my product better that, you know, if you think your product is like your favorite recipe, you know, it's, it's a sandwich. Your sandwich probably doesn't taste good. And so, yes, you should go make a better sandwich. You're going to make a better sandwich by having a better process. You you know what I'm saying? Like, you're not going to know how to improve this unless you're moving quickly. And so one of the things in the military that I learned was the OODA loop. And so this is where you are um, kind of creating a feedback loop to go figure out how you take action, right? And... So many times people think they're moving fast and they don't understand what fast is. I like to say big corporations move in months and years, mid-sized companies, mid-size companies move in in weeks, fast-starting you know, startups move in, in days. And if you're just getting off the ground, you need to move in hours. Uh, and so because the more you increase the signal collect some information from a customer, feedback, what have you, you go create an experiment, you go deploy that to your product or service, you go test if it works, and then you go get more feedback from them. Like that flywheel, if anybody brings me a business and the structural nature of that business says like, it's going to take them six months to build something. And then we're going to go put it in front of the customer. Then we're going to see if they like it. And then, oh, that's not enough. We got to do some type of marketing campaign to make them know that it exists. That's way too slow. You're going to run out of cash, you know, months later. I want to see businesses that can run, you know, in in like days, like we can run experiments in days because then we can compound our way to success. And that's the nature of the name of the company. You know, compound annual growth rate is the name. That's what Kager stands for. It's a a term, you know, that the finance nerds might connect to. But I look at it as like, we're not just compounding the cash. We're compounding the product but also we are compounding relationships based on trust because folks showed up for those values and so all of this is connected and the way you connect some of this qualitative you know kind of touchy feely stuff on the values with like core finance and process automation like to me that's the thread that can really make a small business uh, kind of stand out and be successful and i'm trying to bring that to more of the the kager companies
0: you use slack as an example yeah and the two things that they um did right they listened to their customers and they basically iterated within 24 hours right how do you how did you say that in the book it was listen to your customers and add value within 24 hours
1: yeah exactly so if you you know don't have a, a team culture or maybe you're a solopreneur you're just getting started you might want to think oh i'm going to go write this down later i'm going to go and uh, i'm going to think about this and it's like no you need to take action right there's uh, you know great training you'll hear folks who come from you know the finance or investment banking world They'll, they'll say like, if you can, if you can solve the problem in five minutes, like you don't take an action item, you do it right then. And you'll just find that you move so much faster when you, when you, when you move that way. Um, but the reason I like and use that rule uh, is that when you get signal, ask yourself, what can I do to go put this into action in the next 24 hours? Now, you know, maybe there's business, you know, day delays. And so your Friday is a Monday, but the, the takeaway is don't say like, oh, well, let's discuss that on our next uh, standing Wednesday meeting. Like I had to catch myself when I used to manage teams, um, as I started managing large and larger teams, I would get into this trap that was like, okay, I need this business rhythm to be predictable. And so I need to like break this thing in chunks so my admin knows how to manage my schedule. But I was introducing all of this time suck. And uh, I just kind of broke the rule and said, this is all on demand. When you all get this signal go escalate to me if you can't make the decision on your own. And if you can't make the decision on your own, let's ask ourselves why the process is leading to that point of view, because they should only come to me as you've heard, you know, probably politicians and CEOs say they should only, the leader should only be getting proposed the impossible questions. Because everything else, people should have sorted out already. And even those become lessons um, learned to model behavior to say, like, here's how you could go solve this in the future, because you need your organization to be a decision making machine. And so when you force yourself to think the next day is when I have to take action, not the next week or next month, you'll just find yourself moving so much more quickly.
0: All right. Uh, we we there was so much more to get to. We're running out of time. I do want to ask a, a couple more questions, then I've just got a lightning round of, sure. of of fun questions to get to know you a little bit better. But is AI or the possibility of especially generative AI, I I kind of feel like it's an opportunity for companies to get better, right? Because you can't really apply efficiencies that maybe I AI will bring to you unless you have those processes, those workflows, those kinds of, you can't optimize your business unless you've got those all documented. You can't just say, oh, we're going to apply AI, but what are you going to apply it to? So do you feel like this is a great opportunity for businesses to get better just in order to, you know, apply AI? You know, get those, those yeah. document the, the processes documented, get their stuff together. I feel like it's a great kind of reckoning yeah. because people that have that together can immediately apply AI to those workflows and automations. People that don't have their stuff together can't.
1: No, bingo. And, and Kyle, you're hitting it on the head on documenting the process. I've seen multiple times at big companies where a large consulting company comes in, you know, a Deloitte or an Accenture or somebody to help document process and a lot of times it's not because the process is so complicated. Uh, it's because no one in the company has the courage to like simplify. And they're like, well, if we actually move and and automate this, like what about Barbara's department, right? And like all those people and, uh, you, know, you know, John's over there. He's a great guy. Like all these weird interpersonal things happen. And uh, you, it's really hard, I think, for some people to really detach the humans from the process. But... It's, it's so, so important. And I don't think you need a special tool. There's all sorts of dedicated process documentation software. Just go open a Word doc or Google doc and get that thing kind of stubbed out. And I think for every step, a really key piece is making sure you understand what metric you're going to measure for each of those steps in the process, and then what what your target is? What does good look like? Uh, and and that alone is so, so powerful. I'm surprised there aren't more consulting companies who, you know, they're basically a fractional process officer because it's not so much about, oh, you need to be an AI expert. I believe you need to be an expert, you know, process engineer. And then the, it's really easy to go canvas all of the available tools out there uh, to then figure out, all right, can this particular tool solve this particular metric, because now we know what good looks like because we have a target against that metric instead of like, oh my goodness, new AI, like what should I do? The Claude LLM, the, you know, you know, open aid, I just had a dev day. Should I pay attention or not? It's very easy to go parse these things. Uh, I I will say a few things that I think are going to shift uh, for anyone who's specifically either a vendor or buyer of of, uh, certain types of software or folks and startups who are in this space. Uh, I believe this is this is a bet I'm making that autopilots are going to be much bigger than co-pilots, and so if you look at you know what's happening with folks like Microsoft, um, we'll use this, them as an example, but almost every company is following the same model. They're saying, "Listen, we already have a." existing product, we're just going to add a co-pilot to this. And the reason they're incentivized to do that is because that's just really simple expansionary revenue, right? Like the math on that just just makes sense. Um, But I think that's leading to the second piece that I think is going to really be reshaped is, I believe, per user pricing is going to be really under duress very quickly here. Um, And so the idea that your, you know, your SaaS package at 29, 49, 99, you know, all the way down sometimes to, you know, $10 a month per user. And you're like, yes, but we sell to these massive enterprise companies and, you know, we're going to get 10% of their 10,000 employee base. And so, you know, they, they do all this napkin math that we know on SaaS uh, And I think that's going to be disrupted because more and more, of the process is going to be what is is the focus of the, the solution. And as those are autopilots, where there's no human involved in the middle, maybe in bookends of the process, you can't justify charging each human because there won't be many humans in the process. So anybody who's either a buyer of this type of product or is thinking about starting or investing in this type of product, I think those are two things. And the third, um, which uh, I believe is related, A lot of SaaS today, and I'm using SaaS because it's a place I spend a lot of time, but it has knock-on effects that people can extrapolate to other industries. It's a really simple product. It's just uh, what folks call forms over data. And forms over data means that you get a web form, you type in some information, and some workflow kicks off. And most of SaaS is that. Um, Very few is like, oh no, we do this live video streaming and we transcode on the fly. Like, no, stop it. Most of these things are just simple web forms, kick off a web workflow. Maybe there's data connectors to other systems and that's mostly what it is. And I believe those types of, uh, that category is going to collapse. And, you know, the Salesforce and the other large players are going to be just fine because they're going to figure out how to move into this next wave. But anyone who's like starting a new company and you're like, oh my company looks like the old SaaS companies um, but we integrate you know we integrate some chat GPT or something like no that is not the winning strategy I will I will invest in zero of those companies uh, because I think in the next 36 48 months you're gonna look at that and it's gonna just be reshaped. And we've seen this time and time again. There were high-flying billion dollar valuation companies that did XML integration, SOAP integration. Like these were, you know, vernacular and acronyms that people use, and they're like, this is the future. And then little tiny things like JSON came and are like, oh. We don't need, you know, pre-structured data. Just throw your data in this little format. Uh, and, I'm, you know, these are technical pieces, but I'm saying this is going to happen all over. So thinking from first principles, not saying like, well, we've always done this in the nonprofit industry. We've always done this in my manufacturing business. We've always done this in my professional service. Don't assume that the old way is 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 what is just going to be supplemented. I think some of these things are going to be totally rethought. And unless there is a regulatory uh, angle to it where you know, um, you know, know, maybe law can hang on a little longer, maybe healthcare can hang on a little bit longer, but outside of those, some of these other um, kind of products are going to be restructured very quickly, but that's an opportunity for folks who are starting uh, from scratch. But But don't get caught up on thinking like, all I need to do is sprinkle low AI on top. And, and, you know, now I'm going to two X my valuation.
0: Right. I love that answer. So let's go through a lightning round of yeah. questions and I might just have a couple more uh, questions for you too, but uh favorite candy bar. Uh, it is the Kit Kat. Favorite music artist.
1: Uh, my favorite music artist is going to be Jay-Z and uh, this is lightning round, but I have to say many times when we think about artists. I have two things about artists. I'm, I think number one, you can't say it's your favorite artist if you don't continue to listen to them. So you can't say like, oh, I love this app. Like, no, if someone ran telemetry on your Spotify or Apple Music account, who would you listen to the most? And so I don't care who that person is, but I think, you know, you have to really listen to it to say it's your favorite. It can't just be the nostalgia. And I I loved it when I was 18. The other piece specific to Jay-Z, I love the balance on creativity and kind of business sense. And so Mm -hmm. that just really appeals to me.
0: I love it because I would say Prince, but do I listen to him today as much as I did back in the day? No. So, yeah, I
1: love that answer. Favorite cereal? Um, I love odd cereals. And so my favorite cereal is the oddest cereal at the moment. Um, And this sounds weird, but uh, as with many things, I like to taste the buffet. And so I don't have any loyalty to the cereal aisle. Um, Right now I'm eating some type of weird almond, vanilla, granola type thing. Uh, And next month it probably will be something else. And so my favorite cereal is like, you know, what's the hottest club in your city? I'm always bouncing around. So the favorite one is uh, whoever does something weird tells a good story. I love it. Uh, let's see, Mac or PC? Mac all the way. Um, even when I worked at Microsoft, uh, folks gave me a hard time because I had filled out the exception to use a Mac. Um, that's just how I code.
0: So they allow them in, in, in uh, Redmond then? Yes. Right? Okay. Google or Microsoft?
1: This is a great one. Quick call back to AI. So I have companies that are all Google uh, Workspace uh, and then I have companies that use the Microsoft team suite and all the stuff that comes along the side of that. Um, one of the things that like, I prefer the Google workspace, however, um, I got exposed to Copilot, and this is a set of tools that Microsoft is offering on top. I talked of just about like you know these big companies are just adding the Copilot. Um, the reason I wouldn't um, compete against that space is I think folks like like Microsoft are going to crush it there, and the idea that you can talk to your documents. You can talk to your Excel file. You can talk to your PowerPoint. You can talk to your Word doc. You can actually have it take action in some of the, the PowerPoints, write formulas that you never you know, took the time to learn. Um, that's a $35 a month extra addition. And so for $10 a seat plus $35, you're at $45 per employee. It's almost like hiring each of them an assistant for 45 bucks. Uh, And so I'm a little torn because I'm waiting for Google uh, to come out with their version of it, but I don't think it's going to be as good. Uh, So so if it's AI augmented, I go Microsoft. If it is kind of bread and butter, simple, I go Google. I love that answer. So uh, dogs or cats? Uh, Cats. uh, Dog lovers don't shoot me. Phantom or Les Mis? Uh, Les Mis. I don't like musicals. Um, and I own that Blu-ray and I don't know what it is. Um, I I just, there's just something about that story that, that connects, uh, maybe it is the, um, this narrative, right. Of like, uh, you know, you can make it in all sorts of environments. And, uh, that's a thread that uh, resonates with me. What's the book that you recommend the most to people? Um, You know, for folks who have run across a book like mine, that's very simple to read. um, It's simple to read on purpose because I want it to be more accessible. And so when I think about book recommendations, you know, there are all sorts of books on like stoicism that I don't recommend to people because they're complicated reads um, or econ books that there's so much goodness in there, but it's just like, no one's going to finish it. Uh, And so I really start from will someone finish this book? And the book that I recommend the most often is The Psychology of Money. And it's a relatively quick read, but it's very, very easy to read. And the punchline of the book is mostly money and money making is a skill paired with our behavior. And you probably heard the statement, you know, you haven't really learned something until you change your behavior. Like you can have knowledge accumulated, but you haven't learned it uh, until you've demonstrated that your behavior changes. And a lot of what's broken, whether we come from a privileged background or from you know some type of traumatic environment in our relationship with money, so many times that your behavior, what's screwing you up. The privileged person may be greedy. They may be blindsided because they're like, I can't lose. The, the person who comes from a place of scarcity may not move with confidence. And I love that book because it really just exposes that we don't have a lot of fingers to point on why our relationship is broken. But if we really understand that it can be reshaped, we are in control. I love the stoic nature of that. Um, we can react in a different way. And so that's a quick read that I think a lot of folks can get benefit from.
0: All right, LaShawn. So um, thank you for being here. I could talk to you for hours. Uh, it's very fascinating, the stuff we're talking about. We didn't get go down the rabbit hole on some of the things I wanted to get to. Uh, but you say in your book, and I'm quoting here, people are willing to pay not just for the right to say they own something, but also for the right to have an experience that creates new relationships and memories. And I can't tell you how much that resonates with me this has been so awesome i feel so grateful and and, and privileged really to be here and to have the chance to meet you face to face here in seattle and learn from you i wish you massive success in the coming years with Kager investments and continued success in all of your personal and professional endeavors
1: thanks for hanging out thanks for making the time thanks for joining me here in seattle and uh, best wishes to you as you grow your audience i really Love when I feel the right energy uh, from someone and what they're doing. and uh, yeah, i'm part of I'm proud to be part of uh, the journey.